Today we're going to transition uh, on this Thanksgiving Sunday to remind us all that liturgically speaking for the Christian calendar year, this is the last Sunday of the year. It's the Sunday that we call Christ the King Sunday. And of course next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, is the beginning of the new Christian year. So today as we worship, um, I want to focus on the theme of this Christian um, Sunday, the Feast of the uh, Christ the King. And we're going to read from um, Paul's letter to the Colossians, a, li a little short letter that has a very specific purpose, and that is to identify who is Jesus as Christ the King. Who is this one who is the Son of God and Son of Man that we come Sunday after Sunday and have for over 2,000 years to worship and to adore. So if you will, turn in your Bibles, uh, the one you brought with you, or your pew Bible, to Colossians, the first chapter beginning with the 15th verse. And I'm going to ask us to stand for the reading of the Bible. In the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or rulers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross." And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now Paul has a purpose in writing to the church at Colossae. And at Colossae, they are, are, are dealing with a, a philosophy uh, that is, um, has become confrontive to the church in Gnosticism. And I'm going to say a word about Gnosticism. And I think uh, when you hear what the church is confronting, I think you understand more clearly what Paul is addressing. The Gnostics sought to turn Christianity into another philosophy, a philosophy among many. 
And these were intellectuals who saw the Christian faith as simplistic and wanted to raise the Christian faith uh, to a, a different level by asserting their own philosophy into what Christianity was about. They began with the basic assumption that matter is altogether evil and spirit is altogether good. And that out of evil matter, the world was created, thus the world, and all that is material in the world is made out of evil. And, and therefore, God could not in and of himself create the world because the world is evil and God could not touch evil. And concerning Jesus, Jesus could not be fully man because uh, the physical was evil, so Jesus must have been only spirit. And, and therefore, much of what the gospel was all about in the crucifixion of Jesus and the death of his own body and his resurrection was called into question by the Gnostics. God can't have a real body. He must have been kind of like a mysterious ghost in Jesus. The Gnostics claimed to have the mystery of the faith, and Paul begged to differ. Dr. Maxie Dunham, he, he was a pastor, he's now in his 80s, he he, he was also the, uh, the president of Asbury Theological Seminary. He, he's written many books. He, he, he wrote a commentary on this particular uh, letter in the Bible. And, and I want to read you what he said. I think it's a good word for us to hear as the church today. The church is never in a defensive position as long as she remembers who she is. The body of Christ through whom... He intends to become head over everything else. Christ himself signs the letter of the church. It is Christ with whom every power in the universe must reckon. And we who make up the church are not operating out of human wisdom and strength alone. We are a new creation a fellowship of resurrection life. The church, we are the letter of Christ. His seal is upon us. Christ signs the letter of the church. Now this morning what I want to do is, is to uh, bring forth three assertions that Paul makes in this letter to the Colossians. And the first assertion is the, the, the very first verse that we read today, the 15th verse. And, and in it, this is the assertion that the image of the invisible God be proclaimed. We are created in the image of God. From the very beginning of the Bible, uh, we read uh, the, the, the assertion that we are created in the image of God. And, and, and then in John's gospel, we, we read about how, how Christ was in the beginning creating the earth. And so when we read this assertion that the, the image of the invisible God is what we, the church, are all about, Jesus was God himself in human incarnation. 
You know, we're entering next Sunday the, the season of Advent, and the season of Advent is all about taking us to um, the, the, the Christmas season, and, and the Christmas season is all about proclaiming the incarnation of God in Christ Jesus, in that little baby born in a manger, which is so central to our faith. The Colossians knew very well that Paul was, was, was tackling the, the Gnostic problem in philosophy. And he was making it clear that in the body of one human, Jesus of Nazareth, God was incarnate. If Christ were only a man, then he is irrelevant to our thoughts of God. And if Christ were only God, then he is irrelevant to any experience that we have of human life. It's clear that we cannot have Christian principles without our understanding of Christ. And, and in our basic understanding that Paul is uplifting, we as Christians believe that, that, that God in Christ was fully God and fully human. I've entitled the message this morning, Fairest Lord Jesus, after that old hymn of the church that we'll sing at the end of the service today. But Fairest Lord Jesus is the manifestation of God and what we are meant to be, in which we have our personality in the creation by God of who we are meant to be. And the second theme I'd like to connect with this morning is the theme between Christ and the church. The image is in the 18th verse that we just read that says, He is the head of the body, the church. Paul loved to talk about the church as the body, didn't he? We have um, several examples in, in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. We have that, uh, that description of the body, how we're not all eyes and ears and hands and feet, but, but it takes all of us to make the body whole. And, and in this particular passage that we've read this morning, it's important for Paul to say, yet the head of the body is Christ Jesus. And the church originates with Christ. The church is about doing what Christ orders us to do. The church depends on Christ continually as a source of energy and power. How the church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to be about the work of Christ in the world. In essence, what Paul is saying is that we are the resurrection of Christ, the body of Christ. That, that God has bestowed upon the church this, this life and this power. It is the resurrection of Christ that marked the beginning of this new humanity, a new creation, the creation of the resurrected community. You perhaps know the name William Sloan Coffin Jr. He was the pastor of the great Riverside Church, the non-denominational church in, in New York City that was known for its uh, powerful pastors, him, um, Henry Emerson Fosdick and Sloan, William Sloan Coffin falls right in line with that. And this powerful preacher um, in 1983 experienced the death of one of his, his children, a 24-year-old son, who drove a car off into the Boston Harbor and was drowned. 
13 days after his son died, his father preached a sermon at the Great Riverside Church. And these words I, I quote from William Sloan Coffin. As almost all of you know, a week ago last Monday, driving in a terrible storm at night, our son Alexander, who was to his friends a real day brightener, and to his family fair as a star when only one star is shining in the sky. My 24-year-old Alexander, who enjoyed beating his old man at every game and every race, beat his father to the grave. Coffin went on to tell in this sermon of the multitudes of friends and colleagues who sought to comfort him by hurling kinds of pious platitudes as their way of, of trying to bring healing to Coffin. He said, though, I appreciated it so much it was almost as if they were trying to distance themselves from entering our pain. But then he said to his congregation, Riverside, but the members here of the resurrected body at Riverside Church chose a different strategy. You cried with your pastor you allowed him to vent his anger, to voice his frustration, to acknowledge the dread of his own death. In response to their empathy, their pastor said this, that is what hundreds of you understood so beautifully. You gave me what God gives all of us, Minimum protection and maximum support. Minimum protection, maximum support. Well, what Coffin was saying in that hour that was so real to his congregation is, is that God does not, um, does not protect us from all of the bad that can happen to us. That's life in this flawed world in which we live. Not an evil world but a world that is imperfect. 24-year-olds drive into the Boston Harbor and lose their life. Tornadoes come and destroy homes and upset lives. I mean, being Christian does not make us immune from those things that come into our lives that crash in and challenge us and bring us pain. Sometimes it's a it's a scary diagnosis or prognosis that crashes into our lives. The brokenness of a relationship that causes us challenges we find that we're not up for. And yet, William Sloan Coffin reminded his church what we must be reminded about. We are the body of Christ uh, the resurrection community. We have a God who gives us minimum protection, but ultimately our God gives us maximum support. And we experience oftentimes God's maximum support, just as William Sloan Coffin did, in the context 
of the body of Christ, the church. You know, today I've seen families who I haven't seen since the tornado, and some of these families lost their homes. Some of you who are here today either lost your home or, or, or your home was or damaged greatly, and, and you know you're, you're here today. You're in the midst of this resurrection community. I, I heard a testimony this morning about how good it is to be here in church because it's here in church where we experience that maximum support the body of Christ, the empathy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, living itself out. Paul said, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Fairest Lord Jesus is the Lord, the head of the resurrection community. I want to say one more thing this morning. The church is the expression of the reconciliation, the communication of the reconciliation power of Christ. In the 19th and the 20th verse that we just read, For in him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. The dream of God is to reconcile all, reconcile all things on earth and in heaven to himself through Jesus Christ. You know, last Sunday we talked about Paul's letter to Philemon, remember? And we talked about uh, Onesimus, the runaway slave who ran away from Philemon. And Paul was writing uh, to Philemon and encouraging Philemon not only to forgive Onesimus, but he was also encouraging him to receive him not as a slave, but as a brother. Ultimate reconciliation. And, and, and so many people this week have reported to me that the Holy Spirit moved them to reconcile with someone an ex-spouse, a, a, a once-upon-a-time friend whose that friendship had been destroyed. And, and on and on I heard these, these testimonies this week of people who, who the Holy Spirit had moved to, to reconcile with another through forgiveness or through receiving forgiveness. That's what the body of Christ is all about. The reconciliation of our Lord working in and through us. You know, I mentioned earlier that today we have a charge conference, right? And 21 churches are coming to Lover's Lane for our Methodist charge conference meeting. Yesterday, I drove 600 miles. I drove to New Boston, Texas and preached at a collection of charge conferences there. And then I drove from New Boston through the country, just, just got lost three or four times, going to Longview. And at Longview, I preached to a collection there of a charge conference in Longview. And then, of course, I was heading down 20, coming home, had to pull over and see Mom and Dad, you know, in Chandler. And so at the end of the day, I'd logged about 600 miles, preached two times, and was pretty tuckered out. 
But it was so good to be back in my home conference, the Texas conference, and to see friends, some of them I haven't seen in 30 years. I had one man walk up to me, a Methodist preacher in a little town of Perryville outside of Longview, and he said, my mom and dad were charter members at Lover's Lane, the Rosses, and he was right, they were. And other testimony. You know, you know what it caused me to do, though? It caused me to remember my days in the Texas Conference. And those good days and, and those bad days. I started in Henderson, Texas, which was the very district I was speaking to now that it's been combined with other districts. And it was in Henderson when I was diagnosed with leukemia. It brought up all of the, the, those feelings of who surrounded me with that empathy, the body of Christ. And then I thought about Bill Henson. I was his associate in Houston. And, and, and I, I was reminded that, that today is the 15th anniversary of his brain stem stroke that he never recovered from and died just a few weeks later. It, it caused me to remember uh, Bill Henson preaching and some of the things I used to love to hear him say, particularly related to who was Jesus. I remember the story I heard him tell several times, and I've even told you a couple, but he told about a, a bishop that was such a good friend of his, Bishop Arthur Moore. And um, he said Bishop Moore was so popular in the southeast that we didn't call him Bishop Moore, we called him King Arthur. And King Arthur Moore, Bishop Moore, was a beloved saint. And in, in his latter years, he lived right across the, um, uh, the, the, the street from Emory University and Candler School of Theology. And he too had had a stroke. And so he would sit in his rocking chair and he'd rock in the afternoon as the, as the young people would get out of class and and Bill said it, it was a tradition long-standing that, that students would make their way to Bishop Moore's porch and they'd sit there in the, in the presence of his encouragement. Bill said that Arthur Moore would, would say, well, tell me, how, were, how was the class today? And, and, and they'd go on, you know, tell him about systematic theology class or they'd tell him about preaching class and what they'd learned or or. or or, or they'd tell him about a congregational care class. And he said, well, how's your church doing? What's going on in your church? And, and they'd tell about these little country churches in South Georgia or North Georgia and, 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 and how they were learning so much, uh, being exposed to members of the church and how good it was. And, and Bishop Moore would ask them more questions. And Bill said he'd just sit there and listen. Bill was in his Ph.D. studies. And he'd, he'd listen and he said, I knew it was coming. It always came. Bishop Moore would listen and listen and listen before he had the last word. And Bill said, I heard him say over and over again, now you're going to learn a lot over there at the seminary. It's a really good school. You're going to learn in systematic theology all the important things. You're going to learn how to preach over there. And you're going to be able to practice all of this in your little church. But let me, let, let me tell you something. Before you leave that seminary, you better be very sure of one thing. You better be very sure 
about Jesus. You hear me? Be very sure about Jesus. Bill said he can only imagine how the next day in class, systematic theology, a young man would be there in class and they'd be talking about systematic theology and in the back of his mind was running the words of King Arthur, you better be very sure about Jesus. And in preaching class, all of the important nuances about preaching and, and how to construct a sermon and deliver a sermon and, 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 and they'd be hearing, but I have to be very sure about Jesus. You know, I, I can never read the book of Colossians and think about the Gnostics, the intellectuals who were coming to the early church and challenging them and trying to cause them to doubt the faith that Paul was expressing to them without thinking about a scene right out of First Church in Houston. I've shared the story with you before. Bill Henson would preach and what a preacher he was. And after the sermon, he'd come down, he'd step down from the pulpit, we'd stand in front of the altar rail, and I'd stand right beside him because I was in charge of evangelism and receiving new members, right? And then after we'd received new members, we were live on television, which is always a dangerous thing. So, so, so here we were, and when the service was over and the benediction was done, uh, Bill wouldn't do like I do and walk outside and y'all all come and shake my hand. Some of you go this way, but some of you go out that And he'd stand there in the front. So, so people had to come to them to shake his hand, um, and, and many did. The line would be long. And I'd stand beside Bill because sometimes people would tell him something, and he'd say, yeah, I don't want to forget that. Brother Copeland, did you write that down? I said, yes, sir, I wrote that down. I was such a good associate. Did y'all get that? <laughs> and I remember one Sunday, uh, there to his right, our right, there was a group of three men and their spouses. And Bill was shaking hands. I know he saw them out of the corner of his eye and and, and I know he knew them, and he knew why they were there. They, they were all three part of his men's prayer group Bible study that he'd had for years. They'd come to Christ and come to a closer walk with Christ right there in that Bible study with Bill. And he'd poured his life into them, and, and, and uh, they'd been his confidants of sorts. That group wasn't very big, but the word was out. They were leaving the church. It was hurtful to Bill. And, and yet they, they, they were standing there at least to, to say goodbye. And so after Bill shook the last hand, he, he turned and he walked over to his friends and he said, well, it's good to see you here. I heard you're leaving. I'm really sad about that. And they were all looking at their shoes, you know. And then one spoke up and said, well, Bill said, you know, it's... It, we love you so much. You've done so much for us. We love First Methodist. It's, it's been our church for these years. Um, we, we just love it. And Bill said, well, why are you leaving? They started looking at their shoes again. And then the one who was set to speak spoke up. He said, Bill, don't get me wrong. 
you're the best preacher I've ever heard in my life. Sunday after Sunday, you deliver the word. But he said, Bill, when you preach, it's just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You seem to be hung up on Jesus. My eyes got that wide. And I looked over at Bill. And he smiled. And he said, we're going to really miss you. And after they left, he turned to me and he said, Brother Copeland, if I could preach all of my days and at the end of my days, someone would stand at my graveside and say, Lord, he went, hung up on Jesus. Brother Copeland, it'd be enough. It'd be enough. And 15 years ago, I got to go to Huntsville, Alabama and preach at his funeral and stand at his grave and say, Lord, he went, hung up on Jesus. And if you go to that grave today, you'll see written on his stone, Lord, he went, hung up on Jesus. The song we'll sing to end this service, Fairest Lord Jesus, it is said to have come out of the, the bloody Reformation period, 1620. John Huss, and he was burned at the stake, and the, the Moravians who had fled um, into a little town in Poland, basically, where they set up shop. This, this song, Fairest Lord Jesus, is said to have been one of their folk tunes, one that they sang that underscored Colossians 1 over and over and over again. And, and I couldn't help but think about the Moravians and their joy about Jesus. And how when John Wesley was on that, that ship, you know, uh, uh, going from uh, Georgia back uh, to England, a failure as a missionary. And how that ship was in the midst of a terrible storm and it was feared that it'd be lost. How John Wesley heard Moravians singing and, and they didn't seem to be at all afraid. They were singing with so much joy about Jesus. When they finally landed safely, John Wesley took it on himself. He said, I've got to find those Moravians. I want what they have. I want the joy that, that would calm my heart in the midst of the storm. He spent several weeks with them. It was a Moravian, Peter Bowler, that invited him to that Bible study on Aldersgate Street when John Wesley found his heart strangely warmed. And the Methodist movement was begun because John Wesley, he, he found what the Moravians had. They were very sure about Jesus. So when we sing this song at the end of this service, you listen to those words, folksy may have been the tune, but classic, orthodox, 
Christian theology is the message. Amen.